This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Silverwood, episode 10. The first 911 call was placed at 8 o'clock, just after dark. Unfortunately, by then, most of Silverwood's first responders and law enforcement officers had either succumbed to the madness induced by the pollen, or were fighting for their lives. So calls to the emergency switchboard went unanswered. At 8.52 p.m., Marty Gabriel, who lived in Silverwood his entire life, decided to head for the sheriff's department to find out what was going on. Marty had retired from the sawmill four years ago. Two weeks later, he'd been diagnosed with emphysema. The doctor had told him his life expectancy was five years, so Marty was prepared to die. But not the way he was seeing his neighbors and the other townspeople die. He climbed into his battered Ford truck and drove to the sheriff's station in a state of shock, eyes wide at the carnage and violence all around him. With each horrified gasp, he breathed deeper from the oxygen mask he wore constantly, unbeknownst to Marty. It was the mask that nullified the sap's siren call. Marty arrived at the station only to find it in flames. He approached the entrance, cringing at the heat and smoke roiling from the building. Shielding his eyes with his hand, he glimpsed the dispatcher slumped over the switchboard at the front desk. Her skin blackened and curled and sizzled as he watched. Bizarrely, it reminded him of the chicken barbecue fundraiser Silverwood's VFW chapter hosted each summer. He was still thinking about that when his grandniece, 12-year-old Michelle Gabrielle, wandered by with her father's Ruger 22 pistol. 
which she'd taken after killing the rest of her family. Grinning, Michelle called out a cheerful greeting to her granduncle. Then she shot at his oxygen tank. The girl wasn't a trained marksman, so it took four shots. The first three hit Marty, but he was still alive when the fourth bullet punctured the tank. It didn't explode or burst into flame, but the hot shrapnel burrowed into his thigh, causing Marty to run and stumble into the fire. Flames crawled up his legs and then the rest of him. The pain was unlike anything he'd ever felt. Stronger than love, hate, or any other emotion. Unaware that he was screaming, Marty watched in fascination as his skin sloughed away in dribbling waxen globs. In his final seconds, bleeding out and burning, Marty's thoughts returned to the chicken barbecue. He swore he could smell it cooking, and his mouth watered as he died. At 9.46 p.m., Teresa de Guzman, who'd been taking a bubble bath when the violence started, managed to place a panic call to her sister, Maria, in San Francisco. She had time to explain that a mob of people had broken into the house, had killed the cat, and were heading toward the closet she was now hiding in, naked and still wet from the bathtub. Her sister remained on the line, listening as they found her. She heard screaming and a struggle, and then unidentifiable sounds that were somehow worse. At 9.50 p.m., Maria de Guzman contacted emergency services in San Francisco. They advised her to contact the authorities in Silverwood. When she tried, she got a recorded message saying her call could not be completed as dialed. Frustrated and panicked, she called her local authorities again, demanding action. The slow wheels of bureaucracy started rolling at 10 p.m., and the first state police vehicles didn't begin the long drive up the winding mountain road towards Silverwood until well after midnight. By then, it was too late. The sap held sway over all. Lydia sneezed again as she reached for the door handle, but then paused. Had she heard a noise behind her? She cast a glance over her shoulder. Nothing moved in the shadowy trees. The dead man, although he wasn't really a man, he was more of a lumpy, wet smear, was still lying on the ground. Nothing seemed amiss, well, no more so than it already was. The bear is dead, she reminded herself. You saw it burn up. Get on with it. Her rear felt damp as water leaked from the plastic bottle in her back pocket. She was anxious to pour it over the black box and be done with this. Ignoring the wetness, she focused on the entrance. As she forced open the door, it occurred to her that something was amiss after all. When she'd stepped over his body, the dead man, or what was left of him had been lying on his back. Now, he was on his side. Guttural, gurgling laughter bubbled behind her as she started to turn again. Leaves rustled. She caught a glimpse of movement over her shoulder, and she whirled, screaming as the mangled corpse tottered upright and stumbled toward her. 
Now that it was standing, the horrific damage the body had suffered was more visible. Its scalp and the top of its skull had been sheared off. A broken stick jutted from one eye socket. One of its legs was missing and the creature wobbled on one foot. It plodded forward and internal organs sloshed from the gaping cavity of its chest. Kill you, it slurred, trying to form words with its mangled mouth. She saw that parts of its tongue had been sliced off. And then find pity in others. Kill. Lydia turned, frozen in the doorway. She tried to think of something snarky to say, if only to hide her fear. She swallowed. Petey? I killed him already, shithead. The corpse paused mid-hop. Petey? She fumbled in her pocket, pulling out Taylor's pocket knife. The corpse stared at it with seeming recognition. Taylor. You know him? She hefted the knife higher, brandishing it at chest level. You recognize this? Retard. Lydia realized the amount of danger she was in at that moment, and she was certainly terrified, but the word cut through her fears, filling her instead with anger. With that rage came resolve, channeled via sarcasm. Look, she said, trying to keep her voice from trembling. Haven't you ever seen a horror movie? I'm the final girl. You don't get to kill me. The zombie lurched closer, and her fear edged higher. Kill, it agreed. I'd like to stay and talk, Lydia said, but I've got things to do. Then she hurried inside and slammed the door. Standing with her back against it, Lydia shuddered. Her legs suddenly felt wobbly, and her ears rang. She took several deep breaths and collected herself. Surprisingly, it wasn't dark inside Lab 04. Much like the other bunker, the electricity was still on, and fluorescent lights glowed softly overhead. She wondered who had turned them on. Had somebody been here before her? If so, where were they now? Too late, she realized she'd dropped everything but the pocket knife when the dead man had surprised her. No way was she going back outside to retrieve the water bottle and walkie-talkie. The inside of the door had a sturdy bolt lock. Sighing with relief, Lydia slid it into place as the zombie scrabbled against the other side. Zombie, she thought. This is really happening. This isn't some George Romero movie or Armand Rosamilia novel. This is real. Her vision blurred and her ears rang again. The room began to spin. The ringing in her ears grew louder as Lydia slumped to the floor. Her skin suddenly felt flushed. Don't pass out, she warned herself. They're counting on you. Find that black box. She sat with her back to the door and closed her eyes. The zombie's actions were muted now, and the ringing in her ears, a result of delayed shock and fear, became a cacophony. She pulled her knees up tight against her chest and tucked her head between them. Then she focused on her breathing until the lightheadedness subsided. The sounds on the other side of the door came rushing back. Slippery meat slapping on metal. Hell, Lydia muttered as she wobbled to her feet. Even Ash Williams passed out in Evil Dead too. No big thing. 
Steady on her feet, she glanced around the building's interior. She stood inside an empty warehouse. An elevator and a doorway marked stairs occupied the far end of the space. Lydia shuffled in that direction. Of course, Ash had a boomstick. All I've got is a kid's pocket knife. Her eyes watered and her nose itched. She considered returning to the door, ripping it open, and snagging the walkie-talkie. She could use it to beat the zombie's fucking head in, smashing its brains to jelly. And then maybe she could call up Seth on the radio and threaten to do the same to him. What the... Lydia paused, shocked by the urge. Then she shook her head. That's not me. That's the pollen. What Gwen calls the creeper. Determined, she started forward again, making her way to the stairwell while the wet pounding on the door echoed. The sap had grown alarmed since first sensing the other power at work in the forest. It still hadn't been able to investigate them, and the initial power had since grown stronger, siphoning off some of the energy that it had been feasting upon and using it to reanimate every human who had ever died in the woods. One of those meat puppets, one whose death the sap had fed on just hours before, was now hammering at the entrance to Lab 04, single-minded in its pursuit of a still-living human who had already breached that same entrance and was even now making her way toward the black box. This would not do. The sap reached out, calling some of its drone-like extensions spread throughout the forest, urging them to converge on the location, while the other aspects of itself continued to add to the slaughter. It was so close now. All it had to do was replenish the energy the other power had stolen from the ether around Silverwood, and then it would be strong enough to fling the door wide open, returning home and putting an end to this loneliness. Satisfied that its call had been heeded, the sap turned its attention back to the key. The little... girl? Was that what the species called them? The sap had never known genders before being trapped in this place, and they were still confusing. Yes, girl, Gwen. Her name was Gwen. She was unlike the other meat puppets. Similar to the unseen power at work in the forest, the one that had reanimated the dead, but somehow different. The sap reached out to her again. Lydia wandered an increasingly bewildering set of hallways, heading deeper into the subterranean complex beneath the building. The lights flickered and hummed, casting weird shadows in the gloom. She passed workstations, storage rooms, research laboratories, a maintenance shop, several janitorial closets, and a cafeteria but found no sign of the black box. She guessed it was too much to hope for a door marked Black Box Project or Angel Receiver Testing, Authorized Personnel Only. Nor did she see any indications of an interdimensional portal. She thought back to the finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 5, where terrifying creatures from other dimensions escaped through a swirling portal as it opened. 
there was nothing like that here. The whole setting felt mundane. There were signs indicating that Seth had been right, that C had evacuated this facility in a hurry. There were trash cans that hadn't been emptied, vending machines still stocked with junk food and beverages, moldering half-eaten lunches on the tables in the cafeteria, and flyers on bulletin boards announcing employee yard sales and a blood drive. It was as if the place were haunted, not by the spirits of the dead, but by the ghosts of the things they'd left behind. Nothing dead ever leaves Silverwood, Lydia thought, and then wondered where she'd heard that before. She frowned, concentrating. Then it came to her. Seth. He'd mentioned it when going through the archives. Liam and Alex, two young people possessed by separate Silverwood entities. Liam had told Alex, nothing dead ever leaves. Lydia shuddered, realizing for the first time how cold it was in Lab 04. Worse than the silence was the impregnable stillness in the air. The only sounds were her breathing and the monotonous drone of the fluorescent lights buzzing overhead. Which was why Lydia stifled a scream when she heard a plodding, sliding noise behind her. She spun around and saw the corpse from outside squelching down the hall toward her, mangled arms outstretched, mushed head drooping, mutilated lips pulled back in a grin, one good eye gloating as the creature dripped pieces of itself and hopped along on its single leg. Oh, fuck me, she whispered. Yes, the zombie agreed. Hogan there turns down free pussy. Hogan? Was that your name? The zombie's grin grew wider. It reached down and fondled itself. To Lydia's horror, she saw an obscene bulge in its torn and blood-stained pants. Apparently, that was one part of it that was still wholly intact. Come here. Lydia turned and fled, no longer paying attention to her surroundings. She shoved open another doorway and ran down the stairs, feet pounding. Then she emerged into yet another lower level and slid to a halt. Before her was a lone corridor. At the end of it was a room. It had once had a large observational window built into the wall, but the glass had been shattered and fragments twinkled on the floor. The room's interior was overgrown with black slime. It clung to the walls and the ceiling. Stalactites and stalagmites of obsidian goo made it look like some sort of hellish cave. Worse, the slime was moving, pulsating and throbbing with a sickening rhythm that made her nauseated just to watch. In the center of the room was a lone table. Atop it sat what could only be the black box. The device was about the size of a shoebox. Wires protruded from it, but it was obvious that they were no longer connected to anything functional. Instead, tendrils of black goo had sprouted from the box connecting it to the larger, quivering mass that surrounded it. Welcome. Jesus, Lydia jumped. The voice boomed in her head. Come closer. Join with me. No thanks. She pressed her back against the door. You must be the creeper. I am 
Well, maybe you should go back there then. That is my intention. But first, I must be strong enough. Another quip formed on Lydia's lips. It was the only way she could keep from panicking and letting terror override her. But before she could voice it, the dead man knocked on the door behind her, and instead Lydia simply yelped in fright. I cannot control that one. Join me, and you can. The door slammed open as Lydia shrank away from it, putting herself between the entrance and the black box. The dead man tumbled into the hallway, smearing the wall and floor with bits of itself. Slowly regaining its balance, the creature stumbled to its foot. More internal organs slipped from its open abdomen. It lurched after her. Lydia backed up farther. Broken glass crunched under her feet. She cast a glance over her shoulder and saw tentacles of black goo spring forth from the mass. She turned back to the zombie and saw it quickly closing the distance between them. Fast zombies suck, she muttered. Then, behind the corpse, she saw three new figures enter through the open door. They were humanoid, at least in shape, each one possessing two arms and two legs and a head, but they were composed entirely of black goo. The zombie, perhaps noticing Lydia's attention was no longer focused on it, stopped its advance and slowly turned. Fred? It croaked. Is that you, Chief? The three figures didn't respond, but the closest seemed to swell and expand, and then tendrils of goo shot out of its body, encircling Hogan. The corpse struggled and fought, but it was quickly engulfed in the vile substance. Its frantic motions ceased. The three goo creatures were now four. They stood before Lydia, dripping slime and reeking of that same sickly sweet smell the pollen had possessed. But while that scent had been almost alluring out in the forest, in the confined space it was cloying and overpowering. They reached for her. No longer bothering with sarcastic quips, Lydia screamed. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. 
And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were. And it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But... I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. Gwen, crouched over her injured father, glanced back at Taylor. The boy sat on the floor, hugging his knees and rocking slightly back and forth, mumbling to himself about insects. He wasn't looking at her. Instead, he stared at a far wall. Gwen knew from experience that this was what Taylor did when he was frightened. When the sensory overload became too much, he retreated into himself and into his love of bugs. Come, the creeper's voice echoed inside her head. Gwen was pretty sure Taylor couldn't hear it. She squeezed her eyes shut and willed it to go away. She turned back to her father. I have to go for help, Daddy. Seth, lying on his back, reached out and grabbed her arm, squeezing tight. His complexion was pale and his forehead was covered in sweat. Don't you even think about it. His teeth chattered as he spoke. No way. You're hurt, she pleaded. You're hurt and I could make you better. You need a doctor and the creeper is getting stronger. Absolutely not. Lydia will... Something's wrong, Gwen insisted. We should have heard from Lydia by now, but she's not answering her walkie-talkie and the creeper is still making everyone hurt each other. Something's happened to her. We don't know that. Yes, I do, Dad. I know. His grip on her arm lessened, and a shiver racked his entire body. Cold. It's because you're lying on this cement floor, Gwen lied. She knew what was really wrong with her father. They'd learned about it in Scouts just last month. He was going into shock. That was bad. That was very bad. If she didn't find help, her daddy could die. Gwen turned to her friend. 
Taylor, can you find my dad a blanket or something to cover him and keep him warm? He still didn't meet her eyes, but Taylor nodded and got to his feet. Then he scurried off in silence. He feels it too, Gwen thought. He knows something has gone wrong. That's why he's scared. Dad told us we'd be safe in here, but then Lydia left and that man showed up and attacked Daddy, and now Taylor knows. He knows nowhere is safe from the creeper. Gwen? Seth licked his lips. Promise me you you won't go out there, sweetie. Promise. I promise. She lied again and immediately felt guilty. She blinked tears away. Just try to rest, Daddy. You're going to be okay. We're going to help you. Smiling slightly, Seth wiped a tear from her cheek with his finger. My brave little girl. A scout is brave, she recited, and then burst into tears again. I wish Mommy was here. I do too, Seth replied, and then began shivering again. Here, Taylor returned with a puffy olive green winter coat. It had a big fur-lined hood. In his other hand, the boy clutched a bottle of water. This is all I could find. Thank you. Gwen took the coat from him and caught Taylor's gaze. This time, he didn't look away. We did good first aid, Taylor said, glancing quickly at Seth. Just the way Harold's dad taught us. Your dad will be okay. Nodding, Gwen draped the coat over her father's prone form. Sighing, Seth pulled it closer around himself. Drink a sip of this. Gwen twisted the cap off the bottle and then glanced up at Taylor. Can you lift his head for me? The boy knelt behind Seth then gently lifted his head from the floor. Seth opened his mouth and Gwen tilted the bottle, letting him drink. When Seth started to cough, she pulled it away. Seth gasped and then nodded. Taylor let his head back down. Better, Seth mumbled. That's better. Taylor pushed his glasses up on his nose. Get some rest, Mr. Bailey. He's right, Gwen agreed. Close your eyes and rest. We'll listen for Lydia on the radio. And you swear you won't go outside? Neither of you? Gwen nodded, too afraid that if she spoke, she'd start to cry. After a moment, Taylor nodded as well. Pinky promise? Seth held out his hand. Nodding again, Gwen reached out and entwined her pinky finger around her father's. It was something they'd done since she was little, and neither of them had ever broken a pinky promise before. But she was going to now, and the realization filled her with guilt and shame and regret, emotions that overwhelmed and overpowered her own fears and doubts. When her father closed his eyes, Gwen drew Taylor aside, out of hearing distance. The boy stiffened and stared at the floor, but he didn't protest and allowed her to lead him. She knelt behind one of the desks and then pulled him down with her. Taylor, she whispered, look at me, please. He slowly raised his head and Gwen was surprised to see tears in his eyes. I know you have to go, his throat bobbed, but I don't want you to. I don't want to either, but we have to do something. I can go. Taylor offered, but Gwen could tell by his expression that the idea terrified him. I can be brave like Harold would have been if that thing hadn't... You are brave, Gwen insisted. You're one of the bravest people I know, but... 
What are you kids whispering about over there? Seth called out, his voice slurred. Nothing, Dad, we're just worried. It'll be okay. Lydia will stop it. You're supposed to be resting, Dad. Okay. Gwen waited until they heard him breathing, sounds of sleep. Then she turned back to Taylor and lowered her voice even more. I know you're brave, but do you hear the creeper in your head? I did when I was outside. But not in here? No, Taylor admitted. Not inside this building. But I can, Gwen revealed. Even though there's no pollen in here, I can still hear the creeper talking. I think it... and me... I don't know how to explain it. I think we're connected somehow. How? Taylor's eyes widened. And why? Because of your OCD? I don't know, maybe. When my parents first started taking me to counseling, the doctor said I should visualize my OCD as something. So I pictured it as the creeper from Minecraft. This thing out in the woods? It's just like my OCD. It makes me have bad thoughts. Maybe that's why we're connected. I'm not sure, but I know what it wants. Not what it thinks it wants, but what it really wants. I don't think Lydia stopped it. But I think I can. So I need to go out there. But what about your dad? And what about me? You'll be safe inside here, Gwen said, even though she no longer believed it and she was pretty sure her friend felt the same way. And that's what I need you to do. I need you to stay here and take care of my dad. Take care of you both, okay? Taylor took a deep breath and sighed. Then he pushed his glasses back up on his nose again. Please? Gwen's voice cracked. Okay. Taylor nodded. Thank you. Swallowing, the boy shrugged. Gwen crawled back over to her father and checked on him. Seth's eyes were closed. Gwen placed her hand on him, feeling him breathe. Then she pulled it away. Biting her lip, she stood up and returned to Taylor. Is he okay? He's breathing, Gwen said. But he lost a lot of blood before we got it to stop. I'm really worried. Just keep checking on him, all right? I will, Taylor promised. Okay. Gwen nodded, grateful for the information but unsure what to do with it. Do you want me to draw you a map to the place where the creeper is? I saw the one your dad drew for Lydia. Gwen shook her head. You don't need to. I can find it. How? She poked her temple with her index finger. It's calling me. It wants me to come. Taylor frowned. Maybe you shouldn't. If it wants you to come, that can't be good. I should go instead. You already promised me you'd stay here and take care of my dad. Before Taylor could protest anymore, Gwen leaned forward and gave him a hug. He stiffened, but then relaxed. After a moment's hesitation, he hugged her back. I love you, Gwen whispered. Even though Taylor's voice was muffled by her hair, Gwen could still hear the surprise in it. Um, what? She pulled back. Not in a boyfriend kind of way, you doofus. I mean, you're my best friend. Taylor grinned and his ears turned red. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I, um, I love you too. Be careful out there, okay? 
And remember, stick to the creek when you can. Gwen nodded. I will. They checked on her father one more time, and then Taylor walked her to the door. It seemed to open very slowly and sounded very loud. Gwen hoped Seth would wake up at that moment and holler at her and tell her she was grounded and not let her go outside. But he didn't, so she left. Gwen stepped out into the darkness and into the pollen. As she headed into the forest, she could no longer hold back her tears. They sat inside the cabin, no longer having a tea party, but simply enjoying each other's company. The soft glow of a kerosene lantern flickered across the walls. Tree branches, jostled by the wind, tapped along the tin roof. Jeremy sat on the couch with his arm around Emilio, whose corpse was busy dripping onto the cushions. Tasha sat in a recliner next to the window, and Christina was cuddled in her lap, weeping. The girl had turned distraught earlier, saying she'd felt her teddy bear die. She said she didn't understand, and it wasn't fair, especially after she'd made it so no one would die in Silverwood again. Confused, Tasha had done her best to comfort the girl, caressing her hair and patting her back and letting Christina cry into her chest. Curiously, she noticed that the girl left no tears behind. There was no trace of wetness on her shirt. But as soon as the thought occurred to Tasha, it flittered away, and that familiar warm feeling returned. Until Christina suddenly shot up in her lap and screamed. Honey, Tasha gasped. What's wrong? Christina scrambled to the floor and wheeled around in a frantic circle. The girl's hands fluttered, and she began to pull at her own hair and claw her cheeks. Tasha jumped up from her seat and tried to grab her, but Christina pushed her away. Christina, she yelled. Calm down before you hurt yourself. What's wrong? Is it Teddy? No, the girl shrieked. It's something else. I did what you asked, Mommy. I made it so everyone would be like Emilio, so nobody would be dead. But something just killed one of them. One of who, darling? One of the ones I brought back. One of the ones I fixed. Something made it die again. Something cold and... And black. I saw it in my mind. I feel it out there. It's... It's feeding off me. Sweetie, I don't understand. Out there! Christina pointed at the window. I was a good girl, Mommy. I brought them all back. I fixed everything and now something is messing it all up. It's making me weaker and I can't keep everything going. Tasha turned back to Jeremy, looking for help, but he simply sat there staring... Emilio seemed oblivious to the drama. He stroked Jeremy's cheek with one blood-stained finger and... Blood-stained? Tasha frowned. Why was Emilio bloody and mauled? She tried to remember, and while she couldn't, that calm warming sensation didn't return. Christina. She grabbed the girl by the shoulders. What's messing everything up, baby? Explain it to me. I can't help you if I don't understand. I felt it out there for a while. Since around the time of the fires, back when I... When my other mommy and daddy... Behind them, Jeremy groaned. I don't feel so good. It was quiet, but now it's getting strong. 
It knows I'm here, and it's drawing from me. Drawing? What do you mean? I'm getting weaker, and it's getting stronger. What is? Tasha asked again. I don't know. Hey, Jeremy mumbled. Somebody's coming. No, Christina pouted. No more people. They'll mess it all up. Tasha moved across the room to the window and peered into the darkness. Sure enough, she spotted two figures slinking across the yard toward the cabin. Something about their gait seemed off. David had a cousin who limped like that. David. The name shot through her like an electric shock. She had a... someone named David. Christina brushed past her, hurrying to the window. When she saw the two new arrivals, she shrieked, It's my other parents! Her expression was one of shocked anguish and disbelief. Parents, Tasha thought. But she said her parents... What the hell is going on here? How did I... The hike. Willie, the bus driver. That bear... Footsteps plodded across the front porch, and then someone knocked on the door. As Christina's distress grew and her focus waned, Tasha was struck with another thought. I'm not this girl's mother. What am I doing here? And then Tasha woke up. Jeremy screamed behind her. Tasha whirled in time to see him leap from the couch. Emilio slumped over, reaching for him. Oh my God, Jeremy wailed. Emilio, he's... he's... what the fuck is going on? The corpse slid off the couch and flopped onto the floor. It reached for him with broken arms. Whimpering, Jeremy scuttled over to stand at Tasha's side. Emilio tried to say Jeremy's name, but all that came out of its mangled face was a rasping moan. The pounding on the cabin door increased, rattling on its hinges. Jeremy, Tasha cried, we've got to go. No, Christina turned and pointed. The air crackled with static electricity and thunder boomed over the forest. You're not going anywhere. Not again. Tasha grabbed Jeremy's hand as the warm sensation began to creep back in. He squeezed it so tightly she thought he might break it. No, she told Christina. We're not your parents. I'm sorry, Christina, but you need help. You need... The door burst open and the newcomers lunged into the room. Both were horrifically burned, their clothing, hair, complexions, and facial features eradicated amid a mass of worm-ridden, blackened meat. A group of hornets had built a nest in one of their empty eye sockets. Tasha spotted the tail end of a small snake slithering through the burst abdomen of the other. She gagged. You're not my mommy anymore. Christina said to the shorter of the pair, the one with a snake where her guts had been. Then she pointed at Tasha. This is my mommy now. Tasha held up her hands, warding them away. I'm not... I don't... Get him off me, Jeremy shrieked. Tasha turned to see Emilio's corpse tugging and pawing at Jeremy's leg. Both men were making pitiful, mewling sounds, but Jeremy's clearly sprung from terror while Emilio's... They sounded almost sorrowful, like those of a spurned lover. When Jeremy spotted the two new corpses, he screamed again. Kick him loose, 
Tasha urged and turned her horrified attention back to Christina and her other parents. I'm not your mother, the short one croaked. Her voice sounded like a rustling paper bag, simultaneously dry yet phlegmatic. My name is Jen. His name is Chet. We weren't your parents. We kidnapped you and brought you here, holding you for ransom. But your real parents didn't even want your crazy ass. They never paid. That's not true, Christina cried. Stop, you're ruining everything. Jeremy brought up his free foot and slammed it down across Emilio's wrist. There was a wet snap and then he was free. He tumbled backward, sprawling, and collided into the corpse with a hornet's nest for an eye. Chet. The dead man reacted by backhanding Jeremy. Already off balance, the dock worker tumbled across the room, arms pinwheeling, and smashed into the table holding the kerosene lantern. Jeremy, the table, and the lantern crashed to the floor. Jeremy didn't move, but the flames from the lantern did, quickly flickering across a worn throw rug and climbing up the curtains. They also climbed over Jeremy's shirt sleeve. Oh God, Tasha rushed to help him, but the two standing corpses blocked her way. Behind her, she heard Emilio pulling himself across the floor. Now their dead co-worker's mewling was frantic. Tasha glanced at the window and saw more figures converging on the cabin. But these weren't corpses like Jen and Chet. These were humanoid figures covered in what looked like tar or black slime. It's all ruined, Christina ranted. You ran away. Why did you come back? You brought us back, Jen slurred. You're a selfish little bitch. Let me guess, you didn't want to be dead by yourself, so you brought us back to torture us some more with your stupid family bullshit? Dead by herself, Tasha thought, creeping around them. What does that mean? Thunder boomed again, seeming to shake the very earth. The fire, which seconds ago had been racing up the curtains and across the floor and burning Jeremy's clothes, vanished. Tasha turned her head back to the window to see if the slime people had vanished too, but they were still there and drawing closer. Get out of my house, Christina screamed. This isn't even your cabin, Jen sneered. It was my grandmother's, and it doesn't look like this anymore. You just make it look like this. Quit playing pretend. Chet opened his mouth to speak, and an insect flew out. Jeremy? Tasha patted her co-worker's cheeks and then noticed the blood pooling behind his head. She checked his neck and wrist, searching for a pulse, but felt none. Oh, come on. Don't do this to me. She looked up and gasped, stunned at the sudden and drastic change in the cabin's interior. The throw rug and curtains which had previously been vibrant and colorful, and then momentarily on fire, were now drab and moldering. All the furniture was covered in a heavy layer of dust, and the desiccated carcasses of thousands of dead flies and ladybugs littered the floor and windowsills. The windows themselves were coated with grime. The furniture, previously comfortable and inviting, was full of holes, chewed by mice, 
cobwebs dangled from the fixtures and ceiling, and the beautiful tea set with which they'd entertained themselves, the ornately painted saucers and cups and little pot, was smashed to long, disused fragments. What's the matter, Christina? Jen taunted. Not so scary when that fucking bear isn't around, are you? Stop it! Don't you say nasty things about Teddy! Jeremy, Tasha tried one last time to find a pulse, feel a breath, discover any indication that he was still alive. Emilio's wet fingertips clasping at her ankle finally brought her to her senses. That clammy grip. It felt like she was being groped by breakfast sausages. Screaming, Tasha scrambled to her feet, dashed past Jen and Chet, and fled out the door. No! Christina's shout was louder than the thunder that accompanied it. Tasha didn't falter and didn't look back. She ran, gasping and crying and shouting nonsensically. Two of the slime creatures reached for her, their arms oozing black goo, but she dodged them. She crossed the yard, sidestepping the blood on the grass, and reached the edge of the forest. Only then did she pause for breath, flattening herself behind a broad tree. She risked a peek around the side of the tree and was relieved to see the black goo things, whatever they were, had focused on the cabin and seemingly let her go. Shuddering, she watched them shuffle toward it, except instead of the well-kept cabin she'd seen before, it was now a dilapidated old shack that looked ready to collapse, the ghost of a structure that had once been filled with laughter and life, and was now inhabited only by the dead. Gwen had stopped crying, mostly because she was too scared to cry anymore. She shivered, partly from cold, but mostly from fear, as the cold creek water swirled around her ankles. Yes, that's it. Come to me. Gwen hadn't responded to the creeper since leaving the bunker. She'd ignored its urgent calling, the expectant tone, and focused on blocking out the sounds all around her. The screams and gunshots and growls. Wet noises from the dark spaces between trees where there was no water. Rustling far overhead on branches too thin to support weight. She'd ignored the creeper, but it was obviously still able to track her progress. It knew where she was, and as she got closer, the excitement in its voice grew more apparent. What are you, little thing? Not like the others, keys that served as hosts before you. No, you are different. Hurry, I must know more. I must divine what you are. What was she? Gwen squared her jaw, feeling a sudden burst of pride. She was Gwen Bailey daughter of Seth and Vicky Bailey, who were awesome parents even if they censored what she watched on television and some of her video games. She was a friend to Taylor and to... Harold. Tears threatened to spill again as her mind turned to Harold and what Taylor said had happened to him. What am I? She plodded forward purposely, splashing in the water, 
intent on pushing the bad thoughts from her mind. If she started thinking about Harold now, she knew she wouldn't be able to stop. She was a Weebelow scout from Pack 667. A scout is trustworthy, she said, reciting the scout law. A high-pitched shriek from out in the woods was her only reply. A scout is loyal. A gurgling scream answered this. A scout is helpful, friendly, courteous, kind. Something that sounded like a chainsaw revved in the dark. It seemed far away, but the echoes made Gwen falter. She stopped, looked around, and waited. Yes, the creeper insisted. This way, not far now. Make haste, little thing. Gwen stepped out of the stream and up onto the bank. Without thinking, she took a deep breath and then sneezed. Oh no, she thought. The pollen. What if I start having bad thoughts? What if the creeper makes me hurt somebody? What if I go back and kill Taylor and Dad? A scout is obedient, she shouted. Yes, obey. Her thoughts turned dark. Go back and kill Taylor. Stupid Taylor, always crawling around and looking for bugs. Yes, after we are done with you, you can join in the slaughter. A scout is cheerful. I could be cheerful when I smash Taylor's stupid glasses. They're always falling down his nose and he never cleans them enough. Maybe I could tie him down in the sun and hold the lenses over him. A scout is thrifty, Gwen sobbed, struggling against the violent thoughts that threatened to overwhelm her. A scout is brave. I'm brave. Burn him, and then when I'm done, I could burn Daddy, too. I'm brave, she repeated. A scout is brave and clean and reverent. Gwen sneezed again. The pollen seemed to stick to her skin. Reverent. She remembered asking her father what that word meant back when she first learned the scout law. He'd told her it meant showing a deep respect for somebody or something. Then she'd told him she was reverent to him and her mother. Daddy, she whispered. No, I won't hurt you. I won't let the creeper make me hurt you. I'm reverent and brave. An adult woman stumbled through the undergrowth arms outstretched, screeching with sudden wild laughter. Gwen was too surprised to scream, but she recoiled, jumping away as the woman dashed past her, seemingly unseeing. Then Gwen realized why. Two broken sticks had been rammed into each of the woman's eyes. Gwen considered offering help, but then decided against it. Instead, she shrank back against a tree and waited for the stranger to pass. Gwen recalled a joke Harold had told her last year. What's black and white and red all over? A nun with forks in her eyes. The woman rustled through the undergrowth, seeking. Gwen considered sneaking up behind her and bashing her head in with a rock. No, the creeper insisted. You are so close now. Come. When she heard a splash and what sounded like the woman falling into a stream, Gwen darted out from her hiding place and hurried on. To help other people at all times, she recited. To kill them. Kill them all. To keep myself physically strong. 
I might be little, but I'll bet I'm strong enough to kill Petey's grandpa. Mentally awake? Kill Petey, too, and Harold's dad, and, and morally straight. Kill, 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 kill. No! The woods seemed to fall silent as Gwen's shout echoed through the darkness. Then she emerged into a clearing and saw a fence ahead. She approached it and discovered an open gate. Beyond that was a big warehouse. The forest had grown around and over it, concealing much of the sides and roof, but she spotted a door. How did I find it so easily, she wondered. Did the creeper lead me here? Yes, and later it will help me kill everyone. Gwen pushed ahead, squinting and shaking her head, trying to stop the bad thoughts. Outside the door, her foot accidentally kicked something hard. She reached down, felt around in the shadows, and held up Lydia's walkie-talkie. Oh no. She wondered what the radio was doing out here and where Lydia was. She glanced around the perimeter, making sure the coast was clear and that the lady with sticks in her eyes wasn't coming back. She turned the unit on and raised it to her mouth. Taylor, are you there? It's me. She let go of the button and waited. Her heart sank when there was no response. She was about to toss the radio back down when it squawked. Gwen? Taylor's voice sounded tinny but relieved. Gwen, is that really you? It's me. She swallowed. The creeper wanted her to say bad things to Taylor, but she wouldn't allow herself to do that. Maybe the others weren't immune to the creeper's power, but she'd had practice fighting against violent thoughts. I can't talk now, but I made it to the place. Is my dad okay? He is, Taylor said. But he's waking up and he's going to be pissed. Ugliness welled up inside her. Gwen bit her lip to keep from saying all the terrible things popping into her mind. Gwen, are you still there? What should I tell him? I've got to go, Taylor. I've got to go. She clicked the walkie-talkie off before she could threaten or hurt him. Then, carrying it with her, she went inside. Enraged, Christina lashed out at her reanimated former parents and then paused, stunned to discover that her powers no longer worked. It's that thing out in the woods, she fumed. It's doing something to me, draining me. Jen started to respond, but before she could, her body collapsed onto the cabin floor. Chet followed a second later. Christina turned around to see that Emilio was once more lying still. No, she pouted. They're dead again, just like me. But they get to leave, and I'm still stuck here. It's not fair. She ran outside and then slid to a halt gaping in terror as a group of slime-covered humanoids mounted the porch and encircled her. Their bodies dripped and oozed a black goo, but when they touched Christina, the substance didn't stick to her. Indeed, their grasping hands passed right through her. You can't touch me, she whimpered. In unison, the creatures sprouted tentacles of slime from their fingertips, encircling her form in a sort of cocoon. Slowly, Christina began to glow. Then the light in her body flowed out into the slime like water swirling down a drain. 
Christina screamed as the black ooze siphoned off her telekinetic energy. She felt herself getting weaker. She sank to the porch on her knees, finally collapsing. She lay there, panting and weeping. The slime cocoon slowly disassembled until it was just the ooze creatures again. They stared impassively at her. Then, as one, they clumped down the porch steps and returned to the woods. Feeling weak, Christina sat up and watched them leave. She turned back to the open door and the dead bodies inside. She shook her charred, bald fists at the sky, but this time, no thunder accompanied them. It's not fair, she cried with lips that now appeared burned again. I'm stuck here all alone. Gwen reached the bottom of the stairwell and entered a dimly lit corridor. At the far end was a room, and she knew that was where the creeper lived. She could see it now, as well as feel and hear it. Between her and the gelatinous black mass stood a lone figure, much like the ones Taylor had described, a human covered in tarry black slime. Lydia, Gwen whispered. The creature moaned. It's you, isn't it, Lydia? She is me, and we are all together. That's the Beatles, Gwen spat. My parents let me listen to them. Did you steal that from my mind? If so, you got it wrong. And she's not you. She's Lydia. Or at least she was until you took her over. Gwen teared up. While she hadn't known Lydia well, the woman had been kind to her, and funny, and brave. She'd been all the things Gwen wanted to be when she grew up. And yet, despite her strengths, now she was... This. Why did you do that? Gwen demanded. Why are you doing this to people? To feed needs strength to open the door. And the key, you. To open what door? The door home. You're lonely. Gwen said, her tone almost tender, as if she were talking to a lost kitten rather than a cosmic horror. You're lonely and afraid. The creeper didn't respond, but she felt its confusion and doubt. You don't have to hurt all these people just to go home. You don't have to hurt anyone. Must feed. Gwen frowned, thinking. All this violence, it was what she struggled with every day. Violent thoughts. And now she'd seen that violence manifest itself. It had taken over everyone, threatened to overwhelm her as well. But she'd beaten it. She'd fought back and stayed calm. She'd been brave, just like a scout was supposed to be. And as a result, the creeper, her obsessive-compulsive disorder, had diminished. It had become very small. Maybe this one could as well. This creeper. Maybe all it needed was someone to help it, the way her father and Taylor and Lydia had helped her. Maybe it just needed to be brave. Must feed, the creature repeated. I can give you strength, Gwen offered. You said it yourself, I'm not like the others. And I'm not. I never have been. But I know how it feels to be an outsider, to be afraid. I can help you. 
You can feed off me. Just stop hurting people. Let my dad and Taylor and everyone else go. How? Gwen walked past Lydia and to the end of the hall. Something crunched beneath her feet. She looked down and saw broken glass. Then she peered through the shattered observational window. The black box, the thing Dad and Lydia had been so convinced was the key to this whole mess, sat in the middle of the room, a small, tiny thing against the backdrop of the creeper itself. Above the black box was a hole, hovering in the air. It was about the size of a basketball, and it was filled with darkness. The door. I'm the key, Gwen said, and I can go with you. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Neither do I. Just stop hurting everyone. I know it seems like a hard thing to do. I think about hurting people every day. But thinking about it and doing it are two very different things. I can teach you. Still clutching the walkie-talkie, Gwen crawled through the broken window, taking care not to cut herself, and stepped inside. The floor felt spongy and slick, and the sweet aroma of the black goo was almost overpowering. What are you doing? We can help each other, Gwen insisted. How? You don't have to be alone, and we can help each other not to be afraid. Gwen approached the hole and peered into its dark depths. At first, she could see nothing. Then, swirling in the blackness, she became aware of tiny pinpricks of light. They reminded her of fireflies. The thought turned her mind to Taylor and all the evenings they'd spent catching fireflies together. Then she realized what the specks of light were. Stars. The hole was full of stars. She glanced behind her one more time and then climbed up on the table and stood on her tiptoes next to the black box. Give me your hand, she whispered. She felt it hesitate. I am... Afraid? she asked. Me too. But right now, neither one of us are hurting people or each other. So that's a good start. Now give me your hand. A tendril of slime reached for her, its movements tentative. Gwen reached out and grabbed it. A flash of energy lit up the room, and the hole grew bigger, swelling in size. Gwen stepped through, into the darkness. Slowly, the blackness followed, oozing out of the chamber and into the hole. Room by room, Lab 04 was cleared of the sap. Then the retreat spread to the rest of the forest, starting with the infected humans and animals and insects, and then the plants. The sap flowed through the trunks and stems and leaves, back down into the roots and through them into the earth, and winnowed its way deep beneath the surface until it had congealed again into one solid, quivering mass. All was quiet. The door closed. The hole vanished. Eventually, in the space between dimensions, two voices became one. As the first rays of dawn broke over the forest, Willie Sizemore stumbled out of a bramble of thorns and onto the road. 
He recognized it as the same narrow winding road that led up the mountain to Silverwood, but that was all he knew. His memories were a confusing and terrifying jumble. The last thing he clearly remembered was stopping to take a leak. After that, he glanced at his body. His clothing and flesh were torn and cut, and he was covered in blood. Willie felt uncomfortably sure that not all of it was his. Shielding his eyes with his hand, he glanced up the road and then back down the mountain. Shit, he muttered. Now where the hell did I park my bus? The crow took off from its perch atop Coral's abandoned rig and flew into the air, circling higher until it had cleared the treetops. The sky was filled with hundreds of crows. It climbed higher, joining the flock, surveying the carcasses below. It was as if the town and forest had sprouted a carrion crop overnight. The crow cawed in excitement. The croak was answered by others in kind. They would feast well today. Seth stared out at the back of the open ambulance as a paramedic adjusted the IV in his arm. A flock of crows circled above them, darkening the sky with their bodies. A murder, he thought. A flock of crows is called a murder. He needed to get out of here needed to get back out into the forest and find Gwen. When he tried to sit up, the emergency responder pushed him back down on the gurney. My daughter is still out there, Seth insisted, struggling. I've got to find her. You're not going to help her in your condition, sir. We've got hundreds of state police and search parties coming these woods and more on the way. I hear the National Guard has been called up. They'll find her. But you don't, sir. The paramedic's tone was firm. I would suggest you lie back and focus on your son for now. He's not my son. He's... Seth glanced at Taylor, who was seated on a gurney next to him. A drab gray blanket was draped over his shoulders and the lenses of his glasses were fogged over. His shoulders shook, and Seth realized he was crying. Hey, he soothed. Come on, Taylor. It's gonna be okay, buddy, I promise. We'll have you back with your mom and dad real soon. Taylor slowly removed his glasses and cleaned them on the blanket. Then he put them back on. He didn't raise his head to meet Seth's gaze, but Seth knew he was listening. The paramedic climbed out of the ambulance and rushed to help a young black woman with a bandaged thigh who stumbled out of the woods wearing a distraught and haunted expression. Taylor looked up. I think she might be gone, he whispered. Gwen, I think she might. He broke into tears, great racking sobs that shook his slender frame. No, she's not, buddy. Gwen is out there still. She's alive, and you're both right, Mr. Bailey. The voice was feminine and vaguely familiar. Both Seth and Taylor turned toward the speaker. A young woman stood before them. She was stunning, but it wasn't her beauty that gave Seth pause. 
it was the absolute certainty that he'd seen her before. Frowning, he tried to remember from where. What? What did you say? The woman shrugged. I said you're both right. Your daughter is alive, but she's not here anymore. She's gone through the door. Seth tried to sit up, but his arms and legs felt heavy. What the hell had that paramedic put in his IV? Wait a minute, he protested. What do you know about Gwen? Where is she? Tell me what's happened. Smiling, the woman made a mock salute and then backed away from the ambulance. Seth fought to sit up, but before he could, the paramedic returned and shut the doors. Hey, Seth shouted. Hey, goddammit, I want some answers. Where's my daughter? Where's Gwen? Somebody banged on the outside of the ambulance, and Seth heard the engine start. He was still shouting when the ambulance pulled away. The young woman watched the emergency vehicle drive off. Her smile faded in time with the distraught father's cries. She turned and watched another victim being loaded into yet another ambulance. The young woman frowned, thinking, trying to match the face with a name. Was that Latasha Winston of Hirsch Capital? Yes, she thought it was. Who is that? Tasha frowned, trying to recall if she knew the white woman who was staring at her. She didn't think so. So much of the last night and day were a confusing blur. Maybe this woman was one of the crazy people who'd been out in the forest. But if so, then why were her clothes clean? Why was she not injured or stained with blood? She definitely wasn't with Hirsch Capital. So who was she? And why her interest? Why the intense stare? Grunting, Tasha struggled to sit up, but a paramedic pushed her back down. Don't do that. You've been through quite a lot of trauma. We're going to get you to the hospital. Tasha almost laughed. Trauma? Sure, she'd been through some shit overnight, but she was alive. It was her co-workers who had suffered the most trauma. She'd stumbled across some of them while fleeing through the forest, literally tripping over Devin and Amber's corpses. Both had been butchered. She'd wondered what happened. Had one of them killed the other, or had they slaughtered each other simultaneously, or had a third party murdered them both? Latasha? The paramedic asked. Are you allergic to any medications? No. She shook her head. The people I came with, are they... Another first responder popped his head into the ambulance. We ready here, Phil? The paramedic nodded. Almost. Why, what's up? We need a double time. State police finally made it into the town proper. They say it's even worse there than it is out here. Jesus. Really? Yeah. Whole town went crazy. Hundreds dead. Hundreds more injured. They want us up there as soon as possible. We got people right here. They're still pulling injured out of the forest. I know, it's a clusterfuck for sure. But look at the bright side. There's a bright side? Sure. Given the state of things, I don't think we'll be making calls to Silverwood anymore after all this is over. Why not? Because Silverwood is dead. No way they rebuild from this shit. I wouldn't be surprised if they demolished the entire town. Tasha listened to the two men, 
their curt, rough tones and their gallows humor, and started to cry. Her eyes blurred with tears. When she wiped them away, she noticed that the young woman, the one who had been staring at her so intently, was now walking away. The ambulance doors shut, and Tasha closed her eyes. The young woman walked away from the makeshift triage area, striding purposefully past rows upon rows of fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, and other emergency vehicles, and then past an even larger contingent of news vans and assembled media. She kept going until she'd reached a quiet clearing with no people and a decent cell phone signal. Then she pulled out her phone. She had three new emails. One of them was from this reality. The other two were from somewhere else. Ignoring them, she placed a call. Yes, she said, after holding the phone to her ear for a moment. Dr. Michael Gustamante, please. Another minute passed. The woman stared idly at the sky, watching an eagle soar. She hummed tunelessly. Then she spoke again. Dr. Gustamante, this is Alex. The presence is gone. The door is closed. She listened, nodding. Then she spoke again. That's correct, sir. However, I did receive two emails just now that would indicate the anomaly is still active. Whatever energy the entity used to open the door, it was not electromagnetism from CR-07. We can begin the next phase as soon as your team is ready. Should I start preparations? She got quiet again, listening once more. Affirmative, doctor. I'll retrieve it. Alex ended the call, slipped her phone into her pocket, and turned and walked into the forest. You are listening to Silverwood by Brian Keane, starring Neil Helligers and Sarah Malo Christensen. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm, not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night. Silverwood is written by Brian Keane, Richard Chismar, Stephen Kozanewski, Michelle Garza, and Melissa Laysan. Based on Silverwood by Tony E. Valenzuela. It is produced by Lydia Shama and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Theme music by Brandon Roberts.